Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Amen. Thank you for praying with us this morning as we enter into our time of study. I invite you to uh, take a Bible if you have one with you. If you don't have one with you, we have some Bibles available at the back. We'd love to give you one if you don't have a copy of God's Word. That is one of the most transformational things that we can engage with on a regular basis uh, for our spiritual lives. And so um, as we begin this morning, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Uh, We are going to continue talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It's kind of the same thing here, Uh, but but we'll just refer to it often as the kingdom and what it means that Jesus uh, brings in the kingdom and ushers forth a certain kind of way of living and a way of teaching that is very, very unique and special and dynamic within um, the story of the world and the story of the scripture. And so Matthew chapter 11 includes one of these passages that deals with the kingdom, and it's a passage, passage that is um, challenging at times to understand. Um, I want to start by asking you this, uh, just kind of think in your mind, um, how would you expect a king to come? Because if we're going to talk about a kingdom, we might as well talk about a king. How would you expect a king to come? When I was about nine years old, a very famous movie was released, and it's the movie, say it with me, Aladdin. A couple of you know this. I know some of you here and some of you online have actually been to Disney lately, too, so maybe you've experienced this in its great fullness. But so the story of Aladdin, I will not give you the whole story. I'll assume that you know it. But there's this guy who begins as a pauper, and he comes in, he finds this lamp, and out pops a genie, and I don't subscribe to the theology of the movie, but for the sake of illustration, here we go. So he, he wants to be something that he's not. He wants to come into the city as a king, or as a prince. And as he comes in, he has this whole entourage. And the, the song that he comes in on is just, it's lyrically just really well done. He's, he's got servants and monkeys and all this kind of things, elephants, all these things come in to this kingdom where he wants to make a good impression on the sultan or on the king of the entire land. He comes in with this idea of great power and this idea of, of um of authority and persuasion and money. He comes in on an elephant, as you can see, and he comes in expecting a certain kind of response. In the story we're going to look at today, there's this expectation that is placed upon Jesus about how he would come. And that expectation is put there by John the Baptist. And so one of the things we want to think about as we talk about the kingdom this morning is what kind of a king did the people at the time of this writing expect and what did Jesus actually come to do? So if you would look at me, or not look at me, if you would look with me, you can look at me too, I suppose, if you want, if you would look with me, please, at Matthew chapter 11. It's a bit of a long passage. Uh, We're going to read the whole chapter. If you want to remain seated, I invite you to remain seated. If you want to stand, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of the scripture, but I know it's a long one, so um, do what is most comfortable for you. Matthew chapter 11 says this, 
When Jesus had finished giving orders to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent a message by his disciples and asked him, Are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them. He said, Go and report to John what you hear and you see. The blind see, the lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And if anyone is not offended because of me, he's blessed. As the men went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? Look, those who wear soft clothes are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and far more than a prophet, this is the one it is written about. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I assure you, among those born of woman, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the day, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Anyone who has ears should listen. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to each other, We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John did not come eating or drinking, they say. He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will go down to Hades, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal Him. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me, because I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray that you would show us and reveal to us the truth of your word this morning by the power of your spirit who leads and guides us into all truth. May the meditations of our heart and of our mind be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I love it, the amen. That's great. All right. So, how would you expect a king to come? Um, When we talk about expectations, it's important to understand that the Jewish people generally expected a coming king, but their expectations varied. Um, Not all of them shared the same idea of how a king was going to come. And what does it mean that a kingdom, in the words of Matthew 11, um, has been suffering violence and the violent have been seizing it by force? This is a fun one. We're going to tackle this one today. Um, In Matthew uh, 11, it's it's helpful to think of it this way. Um, There's a whole narrative that goes on beginning in the first part of this. And actually, it happens before Matthew 11, verse 1. Jesus has been around the Galilee in particular. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been doing all sorts of things. And so John sends his disciples to Jesus, and he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, like, are you the one that we should expect, or is there another one to come? In the Jewish idea of the first century, you, you had different dimensions on who they expected the Messiah to be and to do. For, for example, there's a political dimension that some expected. That, 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 for example, a Messiah would come in, and he would be a political figure, and he would set certain things to right. There was an expectation among some that the Messiah, the one to come, the anointed one, would be someone who's a spiritual leader, who, who would have a priestly role in bringing the people back to God, but it would be primarily through a spiritual means, not necessarily through a political means. Uh, you had people like the Sadducees and the priest who did not expect a messianic figure. They, they just didn't expect it. It wasn't within their worldview. Um, The Pharisees, who are another different component or different group of Jewish people at the time, um, they were among the teachers of the law, along with the Sadducees, they they looked for divine assistance in hard times, all right? They, they, They looked at the toil and the struggle of the people, and they're saying, God, send us a deliverer. The popular opinion, according to Dr. Brad Young, and Dr. Brad Young's book, Jesus and the Jewish Theologian, has been a fantastic resource for me in prepping for this, and so a lot of the helpful material I will be sharing with you has come from him, but not solely from him. Um, He he says the popular opinion at this time was that many people expected God uh, to liberate Israel from its Roman oppressors. And there's a reason for that. I mean, when you're under the threat of oppression, you think back to, if you're a Jewish person, you think back to the Exodus. When for 400 years, the Jewish people are under oppression and they're crying out to God. And it says early in Exodus that God heard their cry, which means he did something about it. And you have the whole Exodus narrative that comes in that we looked at last spring sometime. Um, It was a common Jewish belief that God would not allow his people, Israel, to suffer indefinitely. One of the reasons for that is because there's all these promises given to restore his people to himself. So you have John, and John is in a place likely Macarus, okay? This is Herod's fortress of Macarus. Herod has several fortresses around um, Israel. He's got one in Jerusalem. He's got one over on the sea. He's got this one. This one is over in what is present-day Jordan. So it's, it's east of the Dead Sea, and as you can see, it's a really tall 
piece of rock. And you get up there, and there's a whole bunch of infrastructure that he has had built in by his servants and slaves um, so that he can have the, the, the best possible um, accommodations that he can. This is Jordan. Modern-day Jordan right here. And John is likely imprisoned. The traditional spot is a cave that is on the side of this. And so you can just kind of imagine, there's where you're spending your days. Uh, in the background, you can see the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea in the background, that slight bit of blue before you hit the other side of Israel, or the other side of the lake, which is Israel, uh, modern day, and then you have the sky there. So this is Makarus. Macarus, uh, most likely where John is. And so he sends his disciples who have been probably attending him here, making sure that, that they can keep tabs on him and be part of his teaching here. He sends them in the first couple of verses here um, to ask Jesus, uh, because John had heard in prison here what the Messiah was doing, and he sends a message to his disciples and he asks Jesus through them, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect something else, someone else? It, are you the one who's really the Messiah? And the reason John is asking this is because he had heard what Jesus has been doing. And, you know, it says there that Jesus has been teaching and preaching in their towns. So Jesus has been in the region, most likely of the Galilee, up in this northern part of Israel. And he's been going from town to town to town, Capernaum. Uh, he's been going to places like Bethsaida and Chorazin. And he's been doing amazing things. If we were to read the previous five chapters, you know, chapters five through 10, you have the Sermon on the Mount, which is the core of what it means to... Um, to, to follow Jesus. You know, you've got very practical, ethical demands there. Jesus is teaching, here's how you treat marriage. Here's how you treat honesty. Here's what it means to be a light on a hill that is seen for the culture. John hears all this that's going on and all the healings and all the miracles, and he goes, this is not what I expected. And so he sends his disciples to come and ask Jesus this question. He has this different image, and that's verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 6 of Matthew chapter 11 describe Jesus' ministry. Go report to John. Here's what you see. The blind see. The lame walk. Those with skin diseases are healed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor are told the good news. All right? That's what Jesus is doing. John likely expected a Messiah, a king, to come in and to set up a rule and a reign and to bring judgment. Because John has been preaching, repent, because God is coming back. There is judgment coming for your sin. Now, that's true in part because one day judgment does come. But Jesus' ministry was a ministry before that ministry. Before the ministry of judgment, Jesus is here. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's proclaiming the good news. But central to this is the good news of repent. Why? Because they, meaning the people, can be made right with God through the one whom God has sent to reveal himself, Jesus. So verses 4 through 6 Jesus is calling these people to repent of their sins. He's restoring the crippled, the deaf, and the poor to God through forgiveness. And that's just kind of a summary of Matthew chapters 5 through 10. And then you come to um, verses 7 through um, 10 of Matthew chapter 11. And John's disciples leave. They go to tell John what Jesus had said. And Jesus then begins to speak to the crowds about 
who John is because he, he wants the crowds to understand, here's John's role in my messianic unveiling. Here's John's role in the bringing of the kingdom to this world. And Jesus quotes from a place in the Hebrew Scriptures to describe John's ministry. He quotes from um, Malachi, Malachi, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And here's the passage he's quoting from Malachi. He says, See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger in the covenant you desire, see, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Common Jewish interpretation and understanding of this at the time was that two people were coming, the messenger and the Lord. And so Jesus is claiming here, John is the messenger. He is the one who's going to clear the way before me, then the Lord you seek will suddenly come. So he's saying John is a part of this inbreaking of the kingdom into the world, but he's not the Messiah. He's the one who is the messenger who comes before the Messiah. There's another passage that is tied with this in thinking about the coming of the Messiah within Jewish tradition, and it's Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where it says this, Look, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and the awesome day of the Lord comes. And this matters because Jesus picks up on this in this chapter, and I'm looking for the verse. Um, it is here, though. Love it when, you're, when your brain goes. Um, oh, yeah, verse 14. In verse 14, he says, If you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. So Jesus ties John's ministry to that similar to the ministry of Elijah, the one who would prepare the way, the one who would say, repent, turn back to God, which is one of the functions of a prophet. It's to say, you're not following God, turn around and follow him. So Jesus ties Elijah's ministry to John. So we find then now, uh, in verses 7 through 10, he's, he's walking through that this is not just a prophet, but even more than a prophet. He ties it to Malachi's um, prophecy. And then he says this in verse 11. He says, I assure you, among those born of woman, no one is greater, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. By the way, uh, he wasn't Baptist, like denominationally. Um, Baptist here is actually a word that they didn't translate. It's the word baptizo. It's where it comes from in Greek, and it literally means to dip or to immerse. And so you could call him John the Immerser if he wanted to. Uh, just wanted to let you know he's not necessarily Baptist, but he does, he does uh, officiate and um, preside over people's baptisms, which are um, immersion in the Hebrew understanding and practice. So this is, that's a little extra for you today. Um, so we come to this. Uh, no one greater than John the Baptist uh, has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Immerser, John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. Okay, this is an interesting phrase, and you have to ask yourself, what does it mean that the kingdom is suffering violence and the violent have been seizing it by force? What is Jesus talking about here? What is he tying this to? I gave you all that background information to begin to lay a foundation for this. Um, 
there is a word here that's translated suffering violence. And most translations, or many translations, have something like that. Or they might say has been suffering or suffered or being subjected to violence. And, and there's kind of a negative usage of the connotation. There's a negative usage of this word here. You go like, oh, we're suffering violence. And, and it's this strong powerful word that you take negatively. There's also a positive perspective to this word, and I'll share those words with you in just a minute. Um, If you have a Christian standard Bible, it will read, um, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. If you have an NIV, especially a newer one, I think the older one is different, but um, it says the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. We come to the New Living Translation, And it says, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. In fact, in my Bible, I have a footnote that says you could also translate it forcefully advancing instead of suffering violence. And and the NLT says, and violent people are attacking it. Okay, so there's like attacking or something going on here. The Net Bible, there's there's the, the New Living Translation. So forcefully advancing, violent people are attacking it. The Net translation, um, says the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and forceful people lay hold of it. So there's a little bit of discussion amongst scholars, how do we best translate this? And one of the helpful things to do is what's the context? What is the context? There's the two passages from Malachi that talk about um, John's ministry, and that sets the context for what Jesus is going to be saying here. The, the idea of violence can get really confusing because it doesn't seem to be consistent with Jesus' ministry. It's, it's not that he's going around and violently doing things, except for maybe, I guess, if you're a demon and he's casting you out of someone or something like that, or if you're a sickness and you're getting rid of that. What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and, and forceful people lay hold of it, as the Net Bible says here? The word um, suffered violence, or here I'll show you the New Living Translation again, or the word forcefully advancing and the word violent people come from the same root word, all right? They come from the same root word. One is a verb and one is a noun. Um, And you can translate it a couple different ways. You can translate it to use violence, to force, or to break out, or to break forth. So it's something that could be suffered, or it's something that could be broken and breaking forth. That would be the positive sense of this word. Um, Additionally, there's this word attacking here. In the net translation, uh, it's not translated that well (laughs) in terms of that. In the CSB, it is, um, uh, have been seizing it by force. They keep this idea of seizing. Or the NIV, it says raiding it. Um, That word, you could translate to seize, to snatch away, but you could also translate it to pursue or to seek. All right? Like I said, there was, there was a couple of um, uh, different ways you could translate it. I love how the Hebrew Heritage Bible translates this, all right? This is Dr. Brad Young. This is how he has translated it. He translates it this way. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven breaks forth. It breaks forth. And those breaking forth are pursuing it. We have to ask, what is the kingdom of heaven? It's not necessarily something that is coming in and just pounding things in a negative connotation, but it is something that breaks forth and it comes in forcefully, and it comes in forcefully with the power to heal and the power to forgive. These are the things that Jesus is doing, that Jesus is bringing, 
And part of this context that helps us understand this is um, Malachi in understanding these two roles of John the Baptist and Jesus. And there's one more prophetic passage that describes the coming of the Messiah, and it's this. I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its fold. It will be noisy with people. One who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord as their leader. This is a passage that's talking about the coming king, the Messiah. And you'll notice here that just like one of the previous ones from Malachi, there's two people in view. There's the one who breaks open the way, and then there's the king. Much like there's the messenger, and there's the Lord. From Malachi's verse. So, because we have the ability to... Um, Translation is an art, okay? Translation is an art. It is an incredible art because you have to say, how do we communicate what was intended in the original and make it make sense in today? And that can be a challenge sometimes. So you have words that can have a range of meanings. And I like what Dr. Brad Young does here because he ties this to the context. The context is there is one who is coming before me. John the Baptist, Jesus says. He's the one who's like Elijah, the one who's coming to inaugurate the kingdom. He says in um, verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now. So he's noting that something significant has changed with the coming of John, telling the people of Israel, repent because your king is coming. I like this translation because it keeps the right words, but it gets the context too. Because if you look at break forth and those breaking forth are pursuing it, you get a better picture of what is going on when you go back to the prophetic passage of Micah, one who breaks open the way. It's the same idea. We'll we'll advance before them. They will break out. They will pass through the gate and they will leave, leave by it and their king will pass through before them and the Lord as their leader. Here's the picture. John, all right, he comes. He comes in the spirit of Elijah to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. There's something that God is doing by breaking forth and breaking into this world through his son who will bring forgiveness and healing and hope to people who are lost in their sins and in their transgressions. They are very much in bondage, but they're not, just in spirit, they're not just in political bondage to Rome. They're in spiritual bondage to the adversary. They're caught up in this cycle. They cannot do anything to redeem themselves. They need a rescuer. And here's the picture. Um, at the time of Jesus and before, you would have sheepfolds. And this is a sheepfold near a place called Micmash. And what you would do at night if you're a shepherd is you would put your animals and you would put them in this enclosure. This one's up against a, a, a cave area. It's nice to use natural barriers. There's less rocks to move that way. Because at nighttime, you want to keep your flock safe 
from predators. You want to keep your flock safe from those who want to come in and to attack. And so you move them into a secure place. And then what the shepherd would do is he would put these last little bits of rocks and he would make sure that there was something in that entryway to protect the sheep. All right? Uh, and if he didn't put rocks there, it would be himself. He would lay himself at the entrance to that because a good shepherd cares for the sheep. But here's the idea. What they would do is in the morning, all right, everyone's kind of waking up at whatever time, they would come out and they would kick the rocks that are at the front of, um, of this opening. They would kick them down and they would clear them off to the side so that the shepherd could then lead the sheep outside of the pen and then take them to safe pasture. The image that is going on here linguistically that Jesus is referring to is that there is one who comes and he breaks open this opening. And then the king follows behind him. And there is a new movement, maybe not, may not be the right word, but there is a new um, progression of God's purposes here on earth. The breaking in of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is a present reality according to Jesus. The, the, the kingdom means, um, to be in the kingdom means that someone has said, he's my shepherd. He's my king. I follow him. And by doing so, they place themselves under the protective care of the Messiah, king, shepherd. In other words, to experience the fullness of Jesus' kingdom now, or to live in the fullness of Jesus' kingdom now, means to follow Jesus and to allow him to be our shepherd, to teach us who we are, to teach us what we should value, and to lead us and empower us by his spirit to pursue him with everything we have. The kingdom of heaven breaks forth, and those who are breaking forth are pursuing it, meaning that they are pursuing the kingdom in every facet of their life. It's kind of like what Jesus says when he teaches his disciples to pray. He says, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done. Everything for the disciple, everything for the disciple of Jesus is to be about how do I allow God's will and God's word and God's purposes become that which drive everything I do? How do I pursue and seek that with all I have? So, there's been so many ways that I have seen the kingdom. Ways in which um, small things, large things. I, I've seen the kingdom in so many ways in the last several months, in this last year. I've seen it as families have gathered around the scriptures. And I, I have this conversation sometimes with them that, that during this time that's been a little weird, um, they've enjoyed and experienced a closer time together as family than they ever have before. Because a lot of the other things have been stripped away they gather around God's word. They disciple their kids. They read the scripture together. They have renewed relationships. That blesses my heart, and that is the kingdom at work. Other ways I've seen the, seen the kingdom. I, I've had students come and ask the question, what Bible would be good for me to read? Because they want to read, and they want to engage, and they want to learn God's heart and God's word. Man, that's part of the kingdom. Digging in, pursuing what God wants, God's will, God's way for your life. 
I have friends who are following God's leading to sell their home to be a part of an RV camping ministry. They're currently in Arizona. Man, their timing is something, right? Um, but they're currently in Arizona, maybe even joining us on the live stream today. They're jumping into God's kingdom because God wants them to follow. And they say, Lord, how do we follow? How do we follow faithfully? I've got friends who I'm working with who are getting ready to be married. What a fun time. And it's been fun to see them in our first couple times together wanting to place God as the first and most important thing in their relationship. Man, what a blessing. Invest in that. Just dig in because that's part of living the kingdom. It's part of pursuing the king. I have a mission partner of ours uh, here at church who is pursuing a very unconventional way to bring the gospel to places that we cannot generally get into without having legitimate business. He's pursuing the kingdom. You wouldn't think it sometimes because you're like, what are you doing? And then he begins to tell you, this is the reason I'm doing this, because it gives me an in to have a meaningful relationship about Jesus with a people who has not heard that he loves them dearly. We have friends who have chosen to love and to bless close friends and family, even despite differences. See, where the kingdom shines is when Self becomes less and Christ becomes more. When we begin to live out by God's grace the principles of his word and say, God, may your kingdom come. God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In our passage, we go to the next section here, beginning in verse 16. And Jesus starts saying, to what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to one another, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a song, a, a lament, but you didn't mourn. And he says, John came eating and drinking, and you call him one who has a demon. And yet I've come, the Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, he's a glutton. He's a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they look at John, and they're like, the guy's way too conservative. He's way too strict. And then they look at Jesus, and they go, wow, he's way too liberal. What's going on? I don't mean that in the political sense. I mean that in the social sense, or the, 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 the time of that time. Uh, that, the, the, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> Their vision of the Messiah was a certain way, but it wasn't the way Jesus came. Now, Jesus came in fulfillment of the Scriptures, but their understanding needed to be corrected a little bit of what Jesus was here to do. Sure, Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge. That is one day. But until that time, he comes proclaiming, repent because the kingdom of heaven is here. Follow me. Let me be your king. These people miss the Messiah who is literally right before their eyes because they had unrepentant hearts. And he pronounces all, all these woes to people uh, here. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, a place where he did a lot of ministry. He says, woe to you, Bethsaida, another place he did a lot of ministry. Because if these miracles were done, it, that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. In other words, if they had seen what you'd see, they'd go, oh my goodness, you are the Messiah. <laughs> you, you are the one sent from God. And he says... If, um, uh, if Sodom 
had seen what you had seen. You remember Sodom from the scripture? Sodom that was, you know, salt. It became salt because God's judgment rained down upon it because they were unrepentant. He said, if, if, if they had seen what you had seen, they wouldn't have had the same end. They'd still be a city today. He's showing them how callous their hearts are, how far they are from God. And verse 20, I think, just highlights it well. He proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Not because they were perfect, not because they tried and they failed, simply because they did not repent and turn to him, the king. They missed the Messiah before their eyes. Verses 25 through 27 um, describe Jesus praising his father because things have been hidden from the wise and the learned, and they've been revealed to infants. It's really kind of an upside-down thing. Sometimes we think the more degrees we have and the more study we do, the more we know. And Jesus says, knowledge builds up, it puffs up. That doesn't mean don't study, that doesn't mean don't do that, but sometimes the biggest barrier we have to following God are the letters that come behind our name. It doesn't make sense to us. Jesus says to do this, but I've studied all this. I'm so wise in so many ways. We begin to trust ourselves and our intellect. We begin to trust our pride and our money and all the ways we can supply for ourselves. And yet Jesus' kingdom is revealed and in, in learned to young people, to infants. And he says, yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father, because no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Father. I'm often humbled. Um, uh, one of the people in our community group is my friend Mariana, and Mariana has Down syndrome. And one of the things I am just humbled by, and she, she's not here this morning, but one of the things I'm humbled by is when I see her worship. It almost brings me to tears. I have to look away because I see a young woman who is so in love with the Lord and engaging with God on a way that I don't always fully comprehend. But there's something that God reveals to her with great power and great love. That as you look at her sing, you go, she gets it. She gets it. She gets it in a way that I miss. Because the way of Jesus is one that is revealed not to the wise and the learned and proud primarily. It's revealed to those who recognize their desperate need of a Savior. And that's Jesus' message in these closing verses. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and you're burdened. He says, come to me. Come to me. He doesn't say, come to church. He doesn't say, come to the temple. He doesn't say, come to your friend. He doesn't say, come to the best help resources you can find. Not, 
not making light of good help resources. But he says, come to me, you who are weary and you are burdened. He says, I will give you rest. See, in Jesus, we learn the identity and the character of God. He promises, he says, I will give you rest. Are you burdened? Are you weary spiritually today? Jesus has come to me. The idea behind the word burdened here, you don't have to turn there now, but you can go to Luke 11, where it talks about how the religious leaders like to place extra burdens upon the people. Do this, then you'll be made right with God. No, do this, and do this, and do this, and do this, and do this. And all of a sudden, all the weight of the rabbinic laws came down upon the people And instead of knowing that they're dearly loved by God, they're burdened by all these things they have to do to be made right with God. Jesus says, come to me. You're weary, you're burdened, you're heavy laden. Your your passage might say, he says, I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now it's interesting. There's a rabbinic phrase in, um, I think it's in the Mishnah. I should have written it down. I think it's in the Mishnah, which is a collection of, of, uh, of writings from the rabbinic period. And it understood that to take the yoke of the commandments upon you was to say the Shema as though you want to do it. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So you can understand here, the yoke of the kingdom of heaven at the time of Jesus is to take Jesus' commandments upon you. He says, take my teaching upon you. He came as a teacher, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, teaching, teaching, teaching. It's not the only place, but it's one of the big places where he teaches. He says, take my teaching upon you. And he says, learn from me. Learn from me. Sometimes we, think, we may think that a yoke re- implies no work. A yoke is hard work. Look at these um, donkeys. Yes, a donkey and an ox, I believe. Hard to tell from the distance here. They have a yoke around them. They're, they're fitted together. Every, every yoke was modified or made for that particular animal because how one animal's neck worked was not how the, same, how the next animal's neck worked. And so they, they, they'd make these particular so that they could pull the load that has been given them the most efficient way. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take take my teaching upon you. It's not a call to inactivity. It's a call to hear Jesus' teaching and to follow. It's It's a call to be obedient. But he says, in this you find rest. Learn from me, because I'm gentle and humble at heart, there you find rest for yourselves. And he ends by saying, my yoke is easy. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Um, he says, my yoke is easy. Easy here means kind, loving, and gracious. The things that God gives us are gracious. Sometimes we may not feel like they are. We, we take upon these yokes of what Jesus says to forgive, to love, to follow. And it can be really challenging sometimes, but Jesus says, my yoke 
It's easy. It's kind. It's loving. It's gracious. It's what God has given us to do in his kingdom for his power and for his glory. But here's the amazing thing. While it may feel overwhelming, he not only gives us the yoke, he gives us the power to pull the yoke and to do what he's called us to. In Christ's strength, the work he has given each one of us here is something he has rightly matched for where you are. Rightly matched for where you are. But here's the thing. If we try to work outside of the strength he gives, outside of the power of his spirit, this looks a lot more like hard, back-breaking work. But with Christ, it's like what Paul says, I think it's in the book of Philippians, through Christ, we can do all things through him who gives us strength. Jesus says, my burden is light. Animals carry big burdens. But with Jesus pulling with, my burden is light. Jesus says this, my burden is light. And um, William Barclay says it this way. He says, as a rabbi had it, my burden is become my song. He says, it's not the burden that's easy to carry, but it is laid on us in love, meaning it is meant to be carried out in love. And love makes even the heaviest burden light. When we remember the love of God, when we know that our burden is to love God and to love one another, which are the two greatest commandments that Jesus says, then the burden has become a song. There's an old story, Barclay says, which tells how a man came upon a little boy carrying a still smaller boy who was lame upon his back. That's a heavy burden for you to carry, said the man. That's not a burden, came the answer. That's my wee brother. The burden which is given in love and carried in love is always light. Why? This is my addition right here. Because love comes from God. Anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. We love because God has first loved us and has given us himself and his spirit to love one another. And he closed with these two questions. What burden are you trying to carry today? What burden are you trying to carry that God wants to carry with you? Maybe it is that you're carrying a burden you don't need to be carrying. Maybe God has called you to something else. Drop that burden and allow Jesus to hook you up to his yoke. Allow him to be the one who leads and guides you. The power to shoulder burdens comes from the Holy Spirit. The decision to shoulder the burden is ours. The kingdom of heaven is God's active ruling in the life of a person who repents and trusts Jesus. You may be here today and you may not have a relationship with Jesus. And I just want to tell you, you cannot make God love you more than he already does. He absolutely loves you. And he wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to be your shepherd. You are loved because you are created in God's image. Your personal standing, your academic achievements, and your abilities have nothing to do with God's love for you. You are loved because God desperately loves you. For no good in and of ourselves, God said, I love that person. Hear those words. 
Jesus says it this way, for God so loved the world that he, be, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's my prayer that you would experience that everlasting life today. And if you've never experienced that or never made that decision, I wanna just invite you to pray after me this morning. If you have made this decision, I invite you to recommit your life to the yoke that Jesus wants to give you. Not pulling in your own strength, but pulling in the one who gives you the strength through his spirit. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, as we head to communion here in just a minute, I invite you to pray these words after me. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, forgive me for my sin. I believe that you died and you rose again to pay the penalty for my sin. And I trust you and you alone to save me from my sins. Lord, thank you for forgiving me and for making me holy. Thank you for giving me your spirit to live for you. We're going to move into a time of communion, and communion is a celebration of what Christ has done for us, his body broken and his blood poured out for our sin. And so um, we have uh, elements here, if you're in person with us right now, they're double stacked. I always have to remind us of that because I always forget. They're double stacked, bread's in the bottom, juice's in the top. I encourage you to send a representative of your family to come forward to receive those elements. Take them back to your seat. In a few minutes, uh, Pastor Cameron is going to lead us through communion together. This is a practice and a remembrance for us as a community who follow Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, God loves you and he wants you to follow him. As we do that, we're going to sing. Invite you to just remain seated and to join us in singing. Or maybe you need to pray before God and you need to search your heart and repent of some sin and, and, and um, take care of some prayerful business with the Lord. I encourage you to do that. Thanks.